The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. This is Squawkbox. In the headlines, the World Bank is warning of a 1970s-style stagflation as it cuts its global growth forecast, saying many countries will find it hard to avoid recession. We'll have a first on CNBC with the OECD Secretary-General about their new growth predictions later today. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen tells Congress the country faces an extended period of higher prices while admitting the administration's earlier characterization of inflation was misleading. As Chair Powell indicated himself, um, both of us probably could have used a better term than transitory. U.S. markets gain for the second straight session despite more profit problems at Target with the retail giants slashing its margin outlook for the second time in three weeks. And Credit Suisse says it will likely report a group-wide loss in the second quarter dragged down by its investment banking unit. A very warm welcome, everybody watching Squawkbox. I, I wondered actually whether we should put a parental warning up at the beginning of the well, program this morning. Well, we start swearing. I don't blame no, you. No, no, no. But, but, but the minute you start a program saying, and just to begin the program this morning, the World Bank is warning of a 1970s-style stagflationary recession. It hardly makes jolly well, reading, They all told it? us in advance, isn't it? And yeah, that, that sound from Yellen is just so illuminating, isn't it? The how well, central bankers utterly and ignominiously failed in their duty to spot the inflationary trends. And I notice, actually, they still keep blaming uh, supply-side shocks because of COVID and because of the war as well. When we all know that there was a huge lack of investment in a whole key areas, including the whole of US shale, in advance of the war, in advance of COVID. And that's a fact. Ask anyone in the industry. Ask those Baker Hughes conferences I went to uh, way before the COVID crisis about the investment dearth because of policies that either at a, a, a government level or, or indeed because companies were worried about price as well. So let's not kid ourselves that everything that's happened now, let's not reinvent history, that everything happening now is because of COVID, is because of the war as well. A lot of it is, there is no doubt about it, but let's just not kid ourselves that the, the investment was flying ahead of that in US shale and areas like that, because that's just not true. Anyway, in other news, apparently Credit Suisse is doing yeah, really well. Yeah, I mean, who'd have thought all that excessive stimulus for COVID, for the great financial crisis, yeah, funny that. How does that would have turned well, with ultra-low interest rates at the same time. Yeah, well, what, that, high that, levels of debt. Yeah, anyway, I've got yeah. the answer for you. Have you? <laughs> for everything. Have you? Okay, no, I well. haven't, no, actually. No. All right. Um, uh, so but I have got one answer. Go on. 27th of April. Okay. The Credit Suisse earnings. Second quarter. What has changed since the 27th of April? So, I was going to say, I had a pun in my head. I was going to go, you know, we need a parental warning. It's all terrible news. We talked about the terrible news, but let's get something better. But there actually isn't anything no. better in Not these if you're credit, a credit Suisse, Suisse shareholder. You remember we had uh, Axel Lehman 
yes. up at uh, the World Economic yes, Forum. Yes, I do remember very well. I mean, what was that, a week and a half ago, two weeks, something like that? Uh, and I, tried, that I tried to forget about Davos as quickly as possible. Okay. <laughs> and at that, well, I mean, what we got there was a reconfirmation of his support for Thomas Gottstein, yeah. um, but no mention of what we're actually going to talk about here, which is an announcement this morning that Credit Suisse is likely to experience a group-wide loss in the second quarter, uh, this obviously is not good news for those who have held the faith and hope that Credit Suisse management will turn it, ar turn it around. Let's give you the direct quote. Um, the bank says, The combination of current geopolitical situation following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, significant monetary tightening by major central banks in response to the substantial increase in inflation, and the unwind of COVID-related stimulus measures, have resulted in continued heightened market volatility, weak customer flows and ongoing client deleveraging, notably in the Asia-Pacific region. Well, when I was in uh, Zurich for those earnings, it was clear already that there was a, a slowdown in client activity in the Asia-Pacific region and a lot of that was ascribed to the zero-COVID strategy that was being pursued by the authorities in China. But what is clear, I think, is that there is um, wider slowing than was um, um, uh, suggested in those uh, earnings. Uh, within the investment bank, the impact of these conditions, together with continued low levels of capital market issuance and the widening in credit spreads, are likely to lead to a loss for this division, as well as a loss for the group in the second quarter of 2022. In fact, if there was one bright spot, it was the Swiss bank, really. That was the one thing that really shone through very clearly. But Inevitably, I think Credit Suisse just um, reflecting um, the, the, the fact that they have found it difficult to do well in this environment, even as they've been firefighting all the previous crises yeah. that they've been fined so over. Even if you were the top bank out there with a price to book of 1.3, 1.5 in Europe, which is way above the, the top levels, it's kind of almost on the par with the, the decent US banks as well. You're going to struggle in these markets because there is no doubt about it, and that's something I was going to mention at the wall. The liquidity is struggling. People are struggling to get block trades off. Even the smallest block trades now are, are suddenly uh, creating wider spreads and, and, and more difficult price movements as well. Mm. Terrific piece uh, from uh, Seeking Out on May 17th said uh, Credit Suisse stock appears oversold um, from Anna Sokolidou. Uh, well, uh, apparently not. And I was actually going to bemoan Credit Suisse today for actually giving us information now rather than April. But then I took a step back and thought, you know what? Things were bad in April and that the fact they've updated us now before their next due results and they're going to tell us again more about this um, with an investor deep dive. How about that? An investor deep dive on the 28th of June. Further details provided. I think fair enough. It's timely. It's between results. If you have got a material problem out there, it's right that you should tell the market as well. Um, but just to finish off on this seeking out the piece as well, yep. they're, they're in no way perfect, but it was widely expected at the same time. The risks seem much better managed. So said this piece that said they're oversold. Uh, it's very clear or not very clear how much time the bank will need to recover from scandals. But this uncertainty is well priced into the stock. Well, the stock is still down 24% year to date. I was just going to throw in, i just add before we move on, um, this group was the subject of speculation about capital raising, what, a week and a half ago, something like that, right. two weeks ago. Didn't see that. Firm denial. We are f fully capitalised, no problem here. Very interesting that they restate that the CET1 capital ratio sits at, you know, a relatively robust 13.5% in the near term. The 
Uh, market, though, will look at this latest news, and I'm not sure that will completely stamp out the speculation at this stage, even though Credit Suisse has said in the recent past, no, we do not need to raise any money at this point. There's some lumpy old shareholdings in there at the top end as well, just to tell viewers who own this stock as well. BlackRock, as you would expect, because they own a bit of everything, 5.06% uh, the top shareholder. Cata, the QIA, owns another 5%. Harris Associates, interesting, uh, flagged up on my screen as activists, has 4.95%. Be interesting to see what they have to say. Uh, Ollie Yan, 4.75%, and Dodging Cox have 4.4%. So actually, the top 10 shareholders own a great lump uh, of this company, uh, quite a large percentage. Uh, let's uh, get on to that World Bank story then. Is this um, where the warning comes in? Oh, yeah. We've just done that there. <laughs> Maybe we should put up a strobe warning as well at this point, uh, throw everything at it. Uh, the World Bank has cut its global growth outlook and warned that the world economy could enter a period of 1970s-style stagflation. Global GDP growth expected to drop to 2.9%, with many countries facing recession. The bank said inflation will remain elevated in most countries, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine exacerbating existing pressures. The OECD is also releasing its latest economic forecasts. We'll speak to the Secretary-General, uh, Matthias Cormann, that's a first on CNBC at 12 Central European time. Uh, US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen testified in Congress, urging lawmakers to pass new measures to help bring down inflation. This is pressure mounts on the Biden administration to address surging prices. Yellen reiterated the White House view that fighting inflation is the number one priority, but urged lawmakers to help mitigate some of the costs related to prescription drugs and housing. She also called for more investment in education and training, as well as renewable energy. Yellen's testimony comes just days after she admitted she was wrong about the threat posed by higher inflation. Addressing the Senate Finance Committee, Yellen admitted calling inflation transitory was incorrect. When I said that inflation would be transitory, what I was not anticipating was a scenario in which we would end up contending with multiple variants of COVID. I was not envisioning um, impacts on food and energy prices we've seen from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So um, as Chair Powell indicated himself, um, both of us probably could have used a better term than transitory look at history and do it. Jeff and I are just having a great debate. Oh, no, we'll do it another time. <laughs> he just said to me, no one can tell what the future is. And you and I spend our life trying to work out what happened and what yeah. that means for what goes on forward. Well, there's, a, there's the most likely path, right? Yeah. You hope. Yeah. But it's a fan chart. It's always a fan it's chart. It's always a fan chart. And there are a range of possibilities. Which and central bankers got ignominiously wrong, despite well, you, the vast amount of money they're paid. Well, well the point is, look, um, it's a mere <laughs> culpa from Yellen. It's a mere culpa from Jay that? Powell. With all due respect. But uh, the fact is they haven't at least done a weaselly political, well, of course, the situation has changed, oh, so our view has changed. Great. They've accepted great. that they got it wrong. Great. I'm, I'm really pleased that the, the, the top central bankers of the world are now admitting they got it wrong. That's a lot of you to me now, isn't it? <laughs> Come on. 
Should have watched this programme, shouldn't they? Um, OK, there's something else they're getting wrong as well at the moment, but I'll tell you that in a second, maybe, if we've got time. I know Harry's waiting in the wings as well. So, uh, right, OK, the markets are up across the board, despite the fact that, of course, uh, there's concern about the yields and concern about what's going on in the retail sector as well. I thought the target move was fascinating because, of course, it's the second time that they've had this warning over what's going on. But the shares really only traded a tad lower. Shares of Target closed uh, slightly lower after the company said it's taking steps to get rid of extra inventory, warning its profits will likely be impacted. Uh, the retailer said it was optimising inventory levels for the upcoming quarters, making room for products that customers wanted. <laughs> it's like, wow, retailer is making room for products that customers wanted. I'm sure that read is accurate from what they've said, but it's, you think about that. Well, what else did they have on the shelves? Oh, yeah, we had all the stuff that they didn't want, but we thought we'd get rid of that now. Uh, Target added its operating margin rate in the second quarter will be roughly 2%. Other US retailers also followed Target into the red. Uh, quick look at Treasuries. I do, I want, I'll make another point in a second. Quick look at Treasuries for you. Here you go, 3.0067 for the 10-year. Quick look at the dollar cross as well. Um, here we go. Adam's going to get it eventually. Go, Adam. No, I can't be bothered. To... Oh, yeah, here we go. Then. I was almost giving up on him. I can't give up on Adam. Uh, 125.66. It wasn't actually his fault. It was the producers. Uh, Euro dollar 106.85. Uh, look at this. Look at this. The yen is imploding versus the greenback. I think that's a fresh 20-year low versus yen. Do you know what? I'm going to save my other point because Harry Broadman's waiting for Jeff to give him a great question. Yeah, let's get to Harry. Um, Harry is a partner uh, uh, and managing director at Berkeley Research Group. Harry, good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Um, let, let me weigh in then on the Janet Yellen uh, testimony and uh, exchange that we heard. Um, to what extent do you think that her brand is damaged at all or tainted by this mere culpa over inflation? I'm not sure that it, I'm not sure that it's terribly damaged. Frankly, I think I think you know the use of the word transitory or the word use of the word wrong was uh, I think a, a little bit harsh to be uh, battled against by the outside world. I mean, don't forget these projections were made prior to the war uh, in Ukraine, and to to note that no one sort of foreseen was able to foresee how these prices would move inflation would rise and so forth so i i think you know did did she get it wrong i think everyone got it wrong and i think that's frankly the point that she should have made that no one was able to anticipate that this war was going to take place and you know the 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 harry. western world would uh, in, go on an oil embargo and so forth right harry Sorry, my, my, my friend, look, we didn't all get it wrong. Some of us spotted that there were trends years ago, way before COVID, way before the war. There was a lack of spending on infrastructure in hydrocarbons around the world because people worried about price. There was a lack of spending on hydrocarbons around the world because people worried about regulation and climate change regulation, both at a state level and a federal level and an international level as well. There was a huge amount of stimulus put in when we had very, very low historic rates across the world. Uh, a stimulus that was put in by Mr. Trump, stimulus that was continually put in as well later on by Mr. Biden. It's wrong to reinvent history, Harry, and say that all these factors couldn't have foreseen a greater burst of inflation. Well, I, I, I think you have I think you're confusing cyclical with secular trends, frankly. And I think that's really important to unbundle that. You know, I don't think anyone was foreseeing a war of Russia and Ukraine a year ago, let, let alone six months ago, was is this the result of what has been going on for the last several years? Maybe to some extent, 
But I do think it's important to, to unbundle between cyclical matters and secular matters. And I think, you know, was the world economy slowing down for other reasons? Yeah, to some extent, I think that's true. But I think it's a little bit harsh to say that one, both Boshi and Powell did not recognize that there was going to be a war and, and that the West was going to put in place an embargo on oil prices and food prices was going to result by, you know, Russia blockading Harry, uh, what Ukraine was exporting. But Harry, and I hear what you're saying. I love the debate. So I think you're right to bring in the cyclical versus structural. I, I totally agree with you on that. But the fact is, when I'm speaking to the US Energy Secretary, Jennifer Granholm, and she's telling me that the problem with US infrastructure in its um, ability to put more gas, gasoline into the pumps and to keep prices low, she's telling me that's because of COVID. It, it's because of the war. That is just palpably not the case, Harry. I went to so many of these conferences with the likes of Schlumberger, with the likes of Baker Hughes, and I saw for two years before the COVID crisis, a huge dive in global investment in hydrocarbons for a whole host of reasons. But it's wrong for politicians. It is wrong for central bankers to reinvent history, Harry. No, I, can, I, I, I have been chomping at the bit about infrastructure that we have underinvested the infrastructure, not just in the US, but elsewhere. So, but that to me is part of the secular regime. And so we and I, you and I are in agreement that this is a secular phenomenon and it's made worse by the cyclical issues. And that's my point. I think we need to, I think we need to appreciate both of these factors at the same time. I, I, could, I, I have been a champion of making more investment in infrastructure in the U.S. I think that has been our Achilles heel for decades. Um, Steve doesn't mention the, the 1.9 trillion uh, stimulus plan um, and the fact that we've had incredibly low interest rates pretty much from the global financial crisis, which have also, I think, stoked the, the, the flood of money into global economies. Um, Harry, to what extent do you think post this uh, mere culpa now it's going to be harder for the Biden administration to get through any legislative program which is designed to tackle perhaps some of the structural challenges that we've been discussing, i.e. more construction, more improvement in the infrastructure of America, uh, a reduction in drugs prices, and some of the frictional aspects of the U.S. economy that are continuing to stoke inflation? Well, you know, I've worked both in the White House and I've worked on Capitol Hill, and i got to tell you, I've never seen sort of a, a more you know, battle-drawn debate between all these legislative and, and executive branch. I, I'm not very hopeful, frankly, that we're going to get a lot of, of good policies uh, g- gotten through the, the, you know, the, the Congress. And I think, you know, the, 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 the uh, you know, environment up there is so acrimonious and so politicized that, and, and it's important to to distinguish between the politics and the policy. And I think we've sort of you know, left the policy aside, and we're now focusing on on politics in Washington. And I think that is re- that is the real tragedy here. And you have a background uh, around trade negotiations. One of the questions that keeps cropping up is, what does the uh, the trading picture with China look like going forward? Um, is the president going to roll back some of the restrictions that were imposed uh, in the latter years of the Trump administration? And are we ultimately just going to continue to trend down this this road of deglobalization, which again does have an inflationary aspect to it? 
So, so again, let's unbundle that. I think I think the tariffs that Mr. Trump put in place on China really serve no purpose. As frankly, as as Mrs. Yellen said, they're not strategic. I would be even harsher about that. They really serve no purpose because Mr. Trump and now apparently Mr. Biden has a fetish about reducing the the manufacturing trade surplus on a bilateral basis between two countries. That's not the issue. The issue is China needs to reform its trade policy. Putting in place tariffs is not going to do anything to reform behind the border policies in China. So I, I, I have been outspoken that, that tariffs are not the instrument. My view is that China probably should be forced to exit the WTO. It has not lived up to its 2001 accession agreement. And no one has been an adult about, about this problem. Putting in tariffs is absolutely the wrong thing to do. It's, it's senseless. We're not going to get anywhere. And I, and I must say, I'm, I'm quite sad that Mr. Trump has taken, uh, sorry, that Mr. Biden has taken this on as part of his trade policy. And I think you got to give credit for Janet Yellen for saying they're not strategic. That, that is her code word for saying she doesn't think this is a wise trade policy. Harry, um, just another complete, and I'm loving the conversation, so thank you for giving us um, great colour from your side of the pond as well. Um, I think there is an enormous problem with the US consumer, despite the fact that people keep telling me how strong the US consumer balance sheet is. If it's so strong, Peter, and I have a question to other people, perhaps probably not to you, why is consumer credit absolutely surging? And why are people putting so much money on revolving credit when credit card rates in the US at the moment are between 16 and 20% on average? Well, I think I, th I think what we're looking at is credit that was built up prior to the interest rates rising, and it's also part of the culture, frankly, of the of the United States consumer uh, that credit is sort of a way of living, you know, one's one's life. I, I don't I don't do that, but I think a lot of Americans do that, and I think that that is a, that is a political philosophy of most Americans, and it's not it's not to our advantage, frankly. And I think when you look at other advanced economies around the world, they're not addicted to credit as much as the consumer in the United States is. Harry, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Harry Broadman, Partner, Thank Managing you. Director at Berkeley Research Group. 20 past one and he gave us all that. I know. He's, what a good man. He's remarkably I don't know what uh, you would, I can't hardly speak. What time is it now? 20 past six, let alone 20, 20 past one. Yeah, Great chat. It's a struggle. That's had a kick off a show. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Harry, uh, if you can still hear us, thanks so much for being with us. JP Morgan's uh, Marco Kalanovic uh, believes the US economy is strong enough to handle oil prices as high as $150 per barrel. For more on that story, check out CNBC.com. Uh, still to come on the programme, the boss of Heathrow Airport is warning the recent travel chaos is set to continue for the next 18 months. We'll talk about that when we come back. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts.
Welcome back. We are, we are, we are debating this. Um, Efforts to arrange new financing for Elon Musk's bid to buy Twitter have now reportedly stalled. Musk had been in talks with a group of private equity companies to arrange up to $3 billion in preferred equity financing. But the negotiations have now apparently been put on hold, so says Reuters. That's as Musk has threatened to walk away from the $44 billion deal amid a standoff over false accounts. Really? Are we still doing this story? Yeah, yeah we are. Yeah. No, it's good. It's interesting. it's interesting. It is interesting. Someone will have to pay in the end. The question is whether it be Elon Musk for breaking off the deal. All right. Yeah, okay. I made a prediction on day one, yeah? Yeah. On, on the Monday of the deal. Mm. I'll make a second prediction. The lawyers are going to clean up on this one. As always. My first prediction I still stands. There ain't no way he's going to pay fifty four twenty. Right. My second prediction is that the lawyers are going to clean up whatever jurisdiction it is, whatever court of appeal it is, whichever, whether it's in New York or wherever it is, or the lawyers are going to clean up. This one is going to rumble for years. The legal dispute between Twitter, the board, and Mr. Musk, and that isn't even a tough prediction. Uh, do you want this one? Yeah, okay, let's do it. The Swedish government says it will not inject fresh capital into loss-making Scandinavian airlines. SAS recently announced its restructuring plans depended on a 9.5 billion Swedish kroner cash injection and a conversion of 20 billion Swedish crowns uh, of debt into equity, warning it could run into liquidity problems without the support. Major shareholders are split on the plan, whilst the Swedish government only supports a debt conversion. Denmark says it is still assessing how to contribute ahead of a decision Next week, Heathrow Airport CEO John Holland Kay has warned it could take the aviation industry 18 months to return to pre-pandemic levels. Thousands of holidaymakers have been stranded at airports amid hundreds of flight cancellations due to air traffic control delays and staff shortages. The Heathrow boss called on the government to help speed up staff hiring. To help speed up staff hiring. Didn't the government do enough by keeping those jobs with the by relaxing rules on security background as well. Oh, that's a great idea. We have relaxing rules on security backgrounds at airports as well as employment history checks. Are we kidding? So let me get this right. Let me get this right. I know we're going to move on. We'll do this in a second. Let me get this right. The government has the most unprecedented support scheme for British businesses, including the airlines and the airports, in history of this country, yeah? We copied what the uh, uh, Kurtzart bite scheme was, uh, a rare success for Frau Merkel in the last crisis. We copied that and Rishi Sunak threw the kitchen sink at it. He threw the dishwasher at it. He threw everything at supporting British jobs throughout this crisis, yeah? Then when the furlough scheme ends, the airports authorities and the airlines sack a load of people because they failed ignominiously, A, to want to keep these people on because they didn't see the demand coming back as well. And now they're saying to the government, you've got to come and help us out again. So, again, you know, just reflecting on Harry's comment, structural v cyclical. So in the moment, we are talking about uh, oh, this challenge because there's been this surge of capacity. In the longer term, what we should actually be talking about is the fact that the introduction of the low-cost model forced economies on the flag carriers and the traditional airline industry. And ultimately, CEOs more focused on shareholder return and bonuses wrought pay reductions across the board in the staffing structure at most airlines. The problem you've got now is not, I don't think, just of the recent making. The problem you've got now is that a lot of these airline workers, whether they were in the planes or whether they were at the airports, 
have become part of the so-called great resignation because what they've done is they've said, why am I doing this job? I don't want to do this job for this compensation any longer. I'll go and do another job where I get better pay, better terms and conditions, and I don't have to put up with some of the um, unpleasantness that comes with actually having to operate around the security systems at an airport. And sometimes, let's face it, public-facing jobs can be quite stressful, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, so I think there's a longer-term structural issue going on here. But as always, the people that made the decisions at the time that have led to this are long gone and they're living in their big houses and counting the money from their bonuses. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.